Well, today we, uh, we're just uh, very close to the end of our sermon series, Be the Church, going through the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I, I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. But we're nearing the end. And in verses 16 through 22, what we find there is that Paul gives to us eight admonitions about things that we should be doing, as he wrote to the Thessalonians back then. Um, and they're very short in phrases. And somebody suggested that uh, maybe it was because um, Paul was running out of parchment, which was the paper that he would write on back in that day, that he had to condense what he needed to say to these Thessalonian believers in these short phrases. Now, last week we looked at eight biblical relationships that should permeate through the life of the faithful church. And we looked at uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Now, today I didn't want to do all eight of these admonitions, which are called final instructions, but I wanted us to look at the first three because we could spend almost a lifetime talking about these first three and seeing what the Scriptures have to say to us about that. So, we're going to listen to the first three of these eight admonitions found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. And I think these are three of the most challenging phrases that I think we can find in the Bible, especially uh, for me, in light of this week and the last week and the things that we are experiencing in the life of our church, uh, that these things are going to be significant about how we live out our Christian faith. And so we're talking about the fact that the faithful church has a growing relationship with God. As we saw in the video, what God wants is all that we have and all of our time and everything else in our life under the Lordship of Christ. And we do that as we grow in that relationship with God. So let's listen to what he says here to us in these three phrases. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now those phrases just resonate with me. Be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now what do we hear in these scriptures and and what is it that we need to take away from it? And that is that this is calling for a time in our life, a commitment of time. And I got to thinking about that. I thought about some world records that have been set. Most of these things I I discovered off of a Guinness Book of World Records. And some of them might even be out of date and already been exceeded by somebody else. But just some things that people spend their time doing. Uh, The baseball season is upon us. And uh, one of the uh, the longest uh, professional baseball game took place in 1981 between the Pawtucket Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings, uh, both AAA teams in the International League. It went 33 innings and lasted 8 hours and 25 minutes. Now, I love baseball, but I don't think I could have sat through that. In fact, it actually took them two days to finish that. They had to quit one day and come back and finish it the next day. And by the way, uh, Pawtucket won the game 3-2, to two, okay? Then I read about a guy that made the longest journey on a lawnmower. Now, guys, I don't know whether you like I am or not, but just uh, two or three hours on the lawnmower on Saturday is enough for me. This guy went 14,594 and a half miles in 260 consecutive days. His name is Gary Hatter. He started his drive in Portland, Maine, and he, on May 31st, 2000, he passed through all 48 
of the contiguous United States, as well as Canada and Mexico before he arrived in Daytona Beach, Florida on February 24, 2001. Now, this is for you guys. You probably want to know some of the details about that. What kind of lawnmower and all that kind of stuff? It was a Kubota mower. He ran about nine miles an hour. He wore out four sets of front tires, three sets of rear tires, and he averaged 14 miles per gallon. Not bad mileage on that. Then uh, just some of the crazy things people do. I think we got a, uh, an illustration of this. Uh, the greatest distance travel with a poo cue on one's nose. Can we got that picture in birth there? That guy right there walked 5,472 feet and nine inches with that pool cue balanced on, on, um, on his chin uh, in um, the Joe Austin Playground, Jamaica, New York in 2008. Now, that's one to me is almost incredible. The longest time that a person could balance on four fingers, right? See, like this, take these two fingers and you stand on those two fingers. How long do you think you could do that? That guy did it 19.23 seconds. I asked incredible, okay? The longest continuous volleyball game lasted 51 hours. That's a lot of volley and a lot of sets, you know? The longest time that a person has balanced on one foot is 76 hours and 40 minutes. I'm getting to the point where I have a hard time balancing on two feet, let alone on one foot for that long a time. Now, there are two things about those records that, that I thought about. Number one is, you know, they're neat. They set a record. It wasn't too long ago, I think, maybe in February, that Britain's men's store uh, celebrated a tie-it-on tie or something like that. Set a world record, a Guinness World Record with the number of bow ties tied consecutively. And I think they tied it into the Children's Miracle Fund or, or something like that. So, you know, those things can be neat and can be helpful. I don't know what these guys benefited from doing all these kinds of things. The pro baseball players, of course, they were getting paid to play. But that's a lot of time spent on that. Why not use your time more... To, to better use and do something for the kingdom of God and the glory of God, okay? Then the second notice about these things is, although these things lasted a long time for each one of those categories, they ultimately came to an end. They were not continually done. That guy's still not standing there on those four fingers holding himself up. That guy still doesn't have the cue uh, stick on his chin walking around. That guy got off the lawnmower finally, you know? So what we need to do then is look at the fact that when we compare those records of endurance to what Paul writes to us today about in the scripture, is that Paul says to us, being joyful and praying and giving thanks are to be done without stop. He says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Over a hundred years ago, uh, a theological professor by the name of James Denny in Scotland called these three verses uh, the standing orders of the gospel. And he called them the standing orders of the gospel because he said these three always apply to every Christian in every situation. Now think about that. Praying always, rejoicing always, and giving thanks in all circumstances, he says, applies to every believer in every situation. And the Greek language makes it very clear. They all are imperatives. They're written in the present tense and which can literally be translated continually rejoice, continually pray, and continually give thanks. That's a great challenge, isn't it? It's a great challenge because we're not, we're not used to doing those kinds of things always, are we? We like a start and a stop to what we're going to be about. 
You see, if it had said, if the scripture had said, rejoice sometimes, pray occasionally, and give thanks when you feel like it, we'd have felt a whole lot better about that. But that's not what Paul said. It's the modifiers that trip us up. He said, always, continually, and in all circumstances. And the reason he does so is because this activity constantly reveals the real impact of the gospel in our lives, that we have totally been changed and are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, growing in our relationship with Him. And, and so we are rejoicing always, praying constantly, and we're giving thanks in all circumstances. You see, they just reveal the total life change that takes place in our life when Christ comes into our life. Now let's look at each one of them very carefully. First of all, Paul says, be joyful always. Some other translations are like this. The message translation says, be cheerful no matter what. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, rejoice always. The New Living Bible says, be happy in your faith all the time. Now, here's a little bit of biblical trivia. Might help you out somewhere down in the future. Okay, playing trivia games uh, or if you want to get a coworker, do a little bet about Bible study or whatever. Ask them the question. I'm going to ask you, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Can you quote that? What? Jesus wept. And we think that. John eleven thirty five. We've said that for a long time. I thought so until this week when I got into this. And you're wrong. I was wrong. Actually, um, Jesus wept has three words with 16 letters. But in, that's in the Greek. In the original language, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is shorter. Only two words with only 14 Greek letters. And so, rejoice always or evermore is the, actually the shortest verse in the Bible from the original language. That might help you out somewhere down the road. That's just thrown in extra, okay? No charge for that, all right? Now, we're talking about rejoicing. A lot of people can associate that with being happy. A lot of people think that, that, that they're the same thing about being happy. I mean, it's good to be happy, to laugh and smile and joke and all of that. But a lot of people have a hard time finding it. They sometimes think it's the government's responsibility to make us happy. Our Declaration of Independence has mentioned three inalienable rights for us. But they're given by our Creator, not by the government. And those three rights are not life, liberty, and happiness. They are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when you think about that, we are a nation of people who are constantly pursuing happiness. There are probably people out today in this rain on a day off pursuing happiness, whatever it might be to bring happiness into their life. Now, number one question that you can ask people about is, is um, what do you want most in life? And the number one answer that comes back is, I want to be happy. So then the follow-up question is asked, well, what would it take to make you happy? You know what the number one answer is? I don't really know. But yet people spend their entire life searching for happiness. Looking wherever they can find it. Thinking that somebody else is supposed to make them happy. Now, we are people who know and believe that happiness is not the same as joy. Happiness comes from uh, the, the word hap, which means luck or happiness, happen, happenings or happenstance. And that means that our happiness is dependent upon our circumstances around us. You know, if everything's going well, everything's uh, fine and hunky-dory and all of that, then we're happy. But when the circumstances change, we lose our happiness. The difference is that joy is an important word in our life because joy is different from happiness. Is that joy is an inner attitude of cheer that comes out in a constant celebration of our relationship with Christ. 
In fact, the word joy is so important in the Bible that the word joy appears 158 times and the word rejoice appears another 198 times. In the Old Testament, there are 27 different colorful words to describe joy. Now, some of the basic meanings are to run around with delight or to shine like the brightness of the sun. And that's easy to do when things are going well. But when we have joy, we can rejoice even in the midst of some of life's most troubling times. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and said, What we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions. Can you imagine that? Rejoicing in your afflictions? Somebody said that the reason so many Christians are miserable is today, but look, right, they're miserable is because they are miserable. The old Methodist evangelist Sam Jones used to say, there are too many dill pickle Christians who look like they've been dipped in vinegar and left to sour. A joyless Christian is actually an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. That's a contradiction in it. And then there are some believers who think that joy and laughter and smiling shouldn't be a part of a believer's lifestyle, shouldn't have anything to do, no place in the life of the church. Come on. Jesus was the life of the party when he would show up. He enjoyed life. He celebrated it. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. But there are some who've developed that kind of, you know, that Baptist holy look. You know what that means? You ever seen anybody with that Baptist holy look? It's somewhere between acid indigestion and a migraine headache. That's what it looks like. And you think that's going to attract people to the faith? No. Now, so where does joy come from? How do we get joy? It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ and nowhere else. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See, joy is not just a feeling, it's an attitude. So you can, you can choose at any time to rejoice. You might be sitting there today and saying, I don't feel like rejoicing. Paul would say to you, rejoice anyway. See, Paul wrote to the Philippians and he told them, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In Philippians 4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. See, our joy is in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord, not in our circumstances and not in our credentials, but we rejoice in the Lord. In Colossians 1, Paul said, if I have to give my life Getting the gospel to you, I rejoice. Can you imagine that? If he had to give his life up to get the gospel to them, he would rejoice. James writes and says, when you fall into various trials, count it all joy. And Peter says basically the same thing in 1 Peter 1.6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Distressed by various trials. That's where we are sometimes. So how do we really define Christian joy? See, Christian joy is not an emotion on top of an emotion. It's not even a feeling on top of a feeling. But it's a feeling and an attitude on top of a truth. And that truth is what we know about God. That's the substance of our rejoicing and our joy in our life. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 28. It says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices and with my song, I shall thank him. Where's the joy coming from? 
It's not your circumstances. It comes from God. See, my heart trusts in him and I'm helped. He is my shield and my strength. And we rejoice in him. Several years back, the Southern Baptist Convention had a a youth outreach project in Nicaragua. And on one of those uh, evenings of the crusade, 133 people committed their life to faith in Jesus Christ. And one couple in particular stood out that their neighbors uh, began to comment about the fact that they never seen them smile so much. And they finally asked them, "Why, why are you so happy? Why are you rejoicing all the time? Why are you smiling? And the woman said, until I had Jesus Christ in my life, I really had no reason to smile. You see, there is where our joy is found. It's in a relationship with Christ. If we're going to be a faithful church, if we're going to be the church, then we need to rejoice always. And that is grow in our relationship with Christ and know that our joy comes from a relationship with Christ. And it's not out of our circumstances. Okay. Now, the second thing Paul says is pray continually. The older I get and more I experience life, the more I come to appreciate and understand this passage. Pray continually. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to constantly be on your knees offering up an audible prayer to God. But what it does mean is that you maintain a constant connection with God through prayer. Now, there should be two aspects of prayer in the life of every believer. Number one, you ought to have your quiet time sometime in your day. When you're reading some scripture, reading devotional material, and spending time in prayer. Have a prayer journal and keep up with events and pray for those and, and ask for God's blessing and keep up with what God does. So that, that, that ought to be in the life of every person. Jesus, we're told many, many times in the scriptures, got up early, left the disciples, went to a place and had prayer time with his father. The second thing that ought to be in everybody's life is that we ought to be open throughout the day in a kind of a communication process with God. We might not speak it out loud, but certainly there are going to be opportunities that will come every day in your life to where you, God will break in and do something for you or remind you of something. And that's when you need to be in constant communication with God and talking with him. Now I want to tell you quickly three things that are the benefit of praying continually. First of all, praying continually gives an awareness of God's presence. Now, that's, I'll admit to it too, and probably you'd do the same thing. There's sometimes I'll spend an hour, hour and a half at my study in the morning, getting my day started, doing my scripture reading, and, and having some prayer time, praying through the scriptures. And then oftentimes I get so busy doing the things of ministry that sometimes it's at the end of the day I reflect and I think about, how did I relate to God today? But if we maintain that prayerful spirit all the time, we will never lose a sense of the presence of God. Okay? So praying continually gives an awareness of God's presence. Secondly, when we pray continually, we are expressing our dependence upon God. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you are aware of God's presence in your life, then you'll find yourself often breathing those prayers like, Help me, Lord. Give me wisdom, Lord. Or thank you, Lord. The disciples of Jesus saw him do many, many things. They saw him perform miracles. They heard him preach. Uh, They saw him raise the dead. All those kinds of things. But they came to him and they, they asked him to teach them one thing. What was it? Teach us to what? Pray. Say it with them. Teach us to pray. Why? Because they saw the relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. He would go off and have his quiet time of prayer. And then there would be times in the midst of ministry in the day, he would just break out in prayer. Because he was constantly in touch with God. In John 15, Jesus said that he is the vine and we are the branches. And he says, without me, you can do nothing. 
So we have to be uh, the branches totally dependent upon divine. We have to be in that constant contact with God. And then the third benefit that comes from praying constantly is that when we pray continually, it involves a continual conversation. So you might not speak to God uh, and continually in an audible voice, but you can carry on an ongoing mental conversation with God. So Paul says, pray continually. It's like this. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. And pray until you do feel like it. Pray continually. Then the third thing Paul says is, and this I think is one that would give us the most difficulty. Give thanks in all circumstances. Notice that it is in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. Philip's translation says, be thankful whatever the circumstances may be. New Living Translation says, be thankful in all circumstances. CEV, Contemporary English Version says, whatever happens, keep thanking God because of Jesus Christ. Now the question always revolves around that expression, in all circumstances, I'm supposed to give thanks? Well, yes. When we, we, when we receive good things from God, we know that he is, the, he is the provider and the source of all good things. And we need to thank Him for that. But if we only give thanks when we've got money in the bank, a good relationship with our spouse, when our kids are doing great in school, when we've got a good job and when we just got a promotion, when the doctor checks you out and says you're A-OK, the cancer test came back negative, you know, all of those things, if you just give thanks in those things, you're missing out on the wonderful opportunity to give thanks to God in all circumstances. What are you going to do when times, trouble, and difficulty and afflictions come? It's in those hard moments that we have to trust in God because His love for us does not change. And in the midst of some of life's most troubling times is when we need to be able to give thanks and to give thanks in every circumstance. You see, it would be hard to thank God for cancer that He would bring into your life. But you can say, God, I thank You that You are sovereign. I thank You Your grace is sufficient and that You will be with me all through this experience. See, there are things that happen to us, our family, our church members, and they're tragic. They're disturbing. They're discouraging. And sometimes they are really a test of faith. But we can't see everything at one time. We can't trace God's hand in every circumstance of life because He paints on a canvas much larger than we can see. And we all know that it is difficult to give thanks when our heart is broken. But by giving thanks when we don't feel like it, We're proclaiming that God's wisdom is greater than ours. Eugene Peterson in the message says, Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. See, no matter what happens. And see, stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. Really bad stuff sometimes happens to very good people. And sometimes it seems like even very dedicated believers have more than their fair share of sorrow and pain. On our own, the pain of life would drive us to bitterness and despair. But when we bring God into that equation and we trust in His sovereignty, then we can thank Him in all circumstances. I don't tell you it will be easy, but it's better than the option, which is anger and despair and depression. Last two weeks with Lindsay Salter's hospitalization, Mar would be two weeks that her heart stopped and they revived her. Has been an up and down experience with Jim and Shirley Salter and the entire family. 
that that was good news, that was bad news, that was good news. Then last Saturday, finally had, they took her off the ventilator, then they finally had to put her back on the ventilator. And, and they got the news finally that said that she's not going to get any better. And then there was that move to the 8th floor at Baptist Hospital where she was put under hospice care and the life support was removed. At uh, about 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I, I made uh, the trip up there. And I went in the room. It was an interesting thing. And nobody else was in the room. First time I'd ever seen that. But they had been moved to the 8th floor. I didn't know there was a family room around the corner. They changed that 8th floor at Baptist. And so I just wrote a note up there on the nurse's board. Where they wipe out pens. You know, and say, I was here at such and such a time. Sorry I missed you. And then I just stood over Lindsay and I was having prayer. And then uh, Shirley comes in with a couple of other people. And that's when they said, well, they had to do some things to us. They told us to go to the family room and we came back. Wasn't but about four hours later, I was called back to the hospital last night that Lindsay died. Almost 24 hours to the minute from when they took her off of that ventilator. As we gathered there in that room, I mean, there were tears. There were cries. There, were, there was anguish. There were people pouring out their hearts. There was sorrow. There was grief. But there was also the presence of God. There was also the presence of God. And I stood there before I read Scripture and had prayer and I thought about how are they going to give thanks in this circumstance? Well, knowing Jim and Shirley Salter, I'm sure that they will come up with a way to do that. Before I went there to see Lindsay on Saturday afternoon, I stopped by to spend some time with one of our senior adult members who's in the final stages of lung cancer. And uh, my duty and responsibility and compassion in that time was to talk to her about her uh, impending death and th- make sure she was ready to die spiritually. And to make sure that she had her life affairs in order. And we talked about that. And she cried and I cried with her. But we also claimed scripture. And we were aware of God's presence there with us. And that we could give thanks in the fact that God was there. And that he would be sufficient for her. And that she had eternity waiting for her that was far beyond what she was experiencing in life here. See, Paul doesn't say... Give thanks in all circumstances when they're all good. He just says, give thanks in all circumstances. And when you have a relationship with God that's growing, you can learn to do that. You can learn to see God's hand. You can learn to trust God's sovereignty. Because his promise is that he will work in every circumstance, in every situation to bring about something good. What's going to come out of those two situations, particularly with Lindsay Salter, a 19-year-old college student dying so tragically? There is no telling the number of lives that that Salter family affected up there in the waiting area. There are liable to be people who will come to know Christ because of what they saw in Jim and Shirley Salter and their family. They shared food. They shared their testimony. Jim talked about Christ all the time knowing that there was very, very little hope for her recovery and ultimately led to her death. Sometimes we're given some tough assignments as believers in Christ, aren't we? Here are three, the standing orders. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. How are you doing in those things? See, only in a growing relationship with God will you and I be able to do that. And I trust that we will be the faithful church that we will do that. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for the divine plan that you have that's far above our wisdom. We thank you that even in the circumstances of life that are so confusing to us, where people experience things that we think they shouldn't have to go through, 
that you're there with them, giving love, support, mercy, grace, power to see them through, ministering to them through other people and through your Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to be a a group of people, a church, that will take seriously these final instructions that they are, that we would be people who would who would rejoice because of our relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Thankful for our salvation. Thankful for your presence in our life. That, Father, we would pray continually, constantly bringing you into our life as we go through every day, maintaining communication with you. And then, Father, that we would also rejoice and give thanks in every circumstance. Not necessarily for the circumstances, but in them. Because you have a greater You have a greater purpose out of that circumstance that you are going to fulfill. And one day we will see that. Maybe not here, but maybe in eternity we will see that. So help us to give thanks in all things for your presence and power in our life. And Father, we pray this with full faith and confidence. In that strong and powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.